1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
2: Powered by Clear Vision Development Group. This is Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leader's podcast. Each week, we'll provide you with top business insights, fresh perspectives from world-class guests, and the tools you need to lead better than before. And now, here's your host, author and business coach, Tony Richards.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Better Than Before. I'm Tony Richards, and today... On the program, my special guest will be Sean Campbell, and we'll be talking to Sean about all things leadership, especially in entrepreneurial type service organizations. Sean has quite a story of success, and he'll share that with us coming up, as well as some leadership gold nuggets that he has prepared for us today. And as far as my part of the show, I'm going to focus on three big ideas in our last segment of Better Than Before today. We're sponsored by University Subaru. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. Stand by. My interview with Sean Campbell is coming up here in just a couple of minutes on Better Than Before here on the C-Suite Radio Network.
2: Learn how to take charge and lead yourself, lead others, and lead your company. Purchase online today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and our website, clearvisiondevelopment.com.
1: Welcome back to Better Than Before. I'm Tony Richards, and today I'm excited to welcome Sean Campbell, He's the founder and CEO of Cascade Insights, Sean's been training, mentoring, and educating all his life. An exceptionally well-regarded conference speaker and author, Sean has delivered talks for Fortune 50 companies and top-tier conferences. He's also been the author of several books on technical as well as business topics. Sean's also been a professional services firm owner for over 20 years. His professional services work has spanned consulting engagements with Fortune 50 and startups you've heard of, and the sale of his first professional services company and growth of delivery sales, marketing, and operational practices inside professional services firms. In short, Sean brings a wealth of knowledge when it comes to surviving and thriving as a service firm owner or the leader of a practice area inside a larger services firm. And we're excited that he's here with us today and he's going to share some of that wealth of knowledge with all of you guys. Sean, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. Glad to have you here today and boy, you've done quite a bit. What kind of professional services firm did you own? Well, I've
0: owned two. So the first one I grew and sold, we did what in the vernacular was called technology evangelism, which isn't a phrase that people use as much anymore. (laughs) But that phrase actually came from Apple. There was a guy named Guy Kawasaki, who wrote a book called The Art of the Start, eventually kind of talking about how they did all that. And so first company, To keep it brief, we basically did a lot of work trying to showcase the virtues of new technology that Microsoft and Intel were putting out, usually really deep kind of technical demonstrations and stuff like that. And then toward the end of that company, we were doing a lot of competitive analysis of competing solutions in the technology landscape. And so that when we sold the first company, we said, well, we really like doing this kind of work. Maybe we could form a company that just does competitive work and that led to the kernel of what became Cascade that started out as a firm that did a lot of competitive intelligence competitive research and then over the years has broadened that out to just full service market research for technology companies
1: that's fantastic that's fantastic well just Let's get into a little bit of your philosophy on managing in a professional services firm. And as I was reviewing the notes and stuff preparing for our talk today, one of the things that caught my attention that you say quite a bit is no matters more than yes, when you're acquiring and working with clients. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, it kind of takes me back to a slightly different phrase I say a lot, which is we live in the age of narrow. And I don't mean narrow thinking, although that might be what people jump to. But, you know, the funny thing about that is depends on who's narrow when you get to that, right? Like, so I'm not talking about a political statement. I'm talking about the fact that we're in an interesting time such that in most people's personal lives, they can expose themselves to a very narrow set of content. And again, this is not like, I'm not trying to make the statement you normally hear about this. I'm saying this more from like a beneficial standpoint. You want to watch English period dramas on Netflix? You could just watch that for the rest of your life. You want to watch campy Russian sci-fi? I haven't found Russian sci-fi that isn't campy. So that's kind of (laughs) what I think. But like, so you could just watch that all day long. Right. You can watch World War II history all day long. And my point in that is that people are used to having very kind of ability to shape very narrowly what They do when they have their personal lives. Same thing comes true with food choices, order whatever you want, those kinds of things. Well, this has now burned its way over into like business and business relationships where when people visit your site, they're really actually looking less these days for what you do, but they're looking for the bounds of what you do. They're looking for what you don't do. And many organizations do a very bad job of explaining what they don't do. They do a very bad job of turning down work. They do a very bad job of explaining through their marketing the kind of clients they don't want or the kind of problems they don't solve. And the reason why you don't want to surrender that conversation is that in this day and age, people want narrow offerings. They're used to it in their personal lives and they want it in their business offerings. They want something that's very narrowly scoped to them. And if you don't show them that path, someone else will, like a competitor will now define your limits for you. right? Or a third-party review site will define your limits for you. And so in the end, I think you have to be courageous enough to in your marketing collateral and in your sales conversations, be willing to turn down and turn away certain people. And to put a little bit of a final bit on this, It's not just that you're being kind to these people, there's a lot of benefits that accrue. Who wants to spend time talking to prospects that don't matter? Who wants to spend time talking to prospects that aren't gonna be good business for you? Who wants to spend time investing in marketing efforts that generate leads that after you talk to them, you realize they're not a good fit for you? But again, this requires a degree of courage because by definition, you're turning away some traffic and some conversations so you can get to the right ones. And to put a final point on it, I think this just generates a massive amount of trust and goodwill. I've seen it countless times over the years. I get on a sales call, I talk to somebody, they start asking questions, and I say, no, we don't do that. And you can almost watch their attention shift. They're so unused to hearing anyone declare out loud they don't do something that what I think you see in their body language and their reaction is pretty obvious I'm now much more willing to trust the next thing you're going to say, because they're so used to the market basically just, yeah, I do that. And I do that. And I do that. And maybe to finish, really, really finish it off. Maybe that's true that you do 900 things, but I guarantee it. If you lay out all 900 things, they're not going to believe it. So at some point you have to put some bounds around it and have the courage to do
1: that. I was just having some conversation not long ago along these same lines and I was saying that I think one of the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make is they want to do too many things. It's like, Oh, I have this idea and this idea and this idea and this idea, rather than being very good at one or two things. And so I totally buy into what you're saying. It's better to be very specific and narrow and be really good at those things than have all those offerings. And I think the reluctance is that they think they're going to miss somebody or they're not going to get a customer because of that, which they aren't going to get one, I think is your point. And they're going to be better off by not getting the customer, right?
0: Right. Because in the
1: end, once you
0: define a market segment that you can serve well, a lot of other kind of virtuous things start to happen. You know, one, you get much more refined in your pitch and your sales outreach efforts. Two, it's much easier for you to kind of devise a pricing strategy that Makes you a lot of money as the firm. I should have probably said makes you good profit because some people might recoil it makes a lot of money. But the reality is businesses exist to make a profit. If they don't, they're no longer a business.
1: Right. I think with our audience on this show, I think you're just fine the way you said it. Okay. All right. Fair enough. You know, every
0: yeah. once in a while, you know, like, yeah. what do you mean a business yeah. makes a lot of money? And I'm like, I'm, well, I'm I mean, it's got to make a profit. And so on top of it, the converse is true. You're not dealing with loser customers. You're not investing in kind of marketing efforts that are drawing in the wrong folks. But here's the thing, if you graph the growth of two companies, if you graphed one that said yes to everybody, and and I've made this mistake before. I mean, to be honest, this isn't like I only always have said no. I mean, I've had circumstances in particularly the second business when we started out where we went really broader than we probably should have at the start, and then we had to fix that. They probably start out with a lot of excitement and a lot of growth. But then what starts to happen is the curve flattens because you're not differentiated your sales efforts now cost more. Your marketing efforts cost more because you're trying to hit all these different market segments and hit messages to them. And meanwhile, the company that was focused in the beginning, they kind of catch up and pass that other company at some point, And they have a lot more staying power in a downturn. As we record this, the economy doesn't look all that awesome. And I can also tell you that like when the economy gets tight, being narrow is amazingly good for you. Mm-hmm. because the companies that are wide, they see all kinds of cost pressure, because in the end, if you're not differentiated, you're left differentiating on cost. And if the economy goes into tanker, then that's even doubly bad. But narrow specialized firms can actually, in some cases, thrive in those really challenging times. And we've proved that out. I mean, that's happened to us multiple times. If this downturn happens, this will be the fourth downturn I've gone through as a business owner. I'm on year... 22 or 23 now of owning a business and I'm 51. So I saw the dot-com crash. I saw the 08 crash. You know what I mean? I've seen, you know, and I can tell you that every single time, the wider the firm was, the worse it was for them, unless they could compete on cost and commodity. So obviously the Walmarts, the Amazons of the world, those kinds of people, they're going to thrive. But there's only so many of those.
1: Well, that's on volume. And it's hard when you're a small professional practice to do that.
0: Right, right. You're just working harder for less money at the end of the day. And that doesn't make any sense. But it does take a significant amount of patience and courage at the same time. And the patience starts to become even more important as you kind of wait for this to grow. And one last quick story on this is that, because we do research in the tech space, so people come to us with their problems and we try to help them with their problems. And this one company, it's a really good example of how this can metastasize if you become like a couple thousand person company. So this organization, which I won't name, because I'm going to give a fair amount of details on, but they're like an upper mid market, couple thousand plus employee SaaS company. And their CMO filled out our lead form and said something to the effect of, it was longer than this. We have like 3000 different customer types we now target. This is a problem of our own making because no one here actually had the discipline to pick market segments and customer segments. And now we sell this thing that we offer to everybody, which has made a nightmare when it comes to marketing and selling because we've got all these marketing segments and everybody says every one of their segments is the most important one for us to follow. Please help us identify an ideal customer profile that's going to generate the most money for us with the least amount of effort. And that's the work we did for them. But this is an organization that's in turmoil at that point, right? You know, they got 3,000 people running around all arguing their own point of view. And what is that? It's a failure of leadership. Somewhere along the way, somebody didn't have the courage to say no to that market segment. Right. It's as simple as that.
1: So you mentioned a word here a little bit ago that I think is very important and key and often misunderstood, often has different meanings to different people, but the word was marketing. So tell us a little bit of because I know you do that for people too. Tell us a little bit about how you put a practice together that helps with marketing for a professional services firm.
0: There's so much there because one of the things is if you go out and read marketing textbooks, 97% of them are going to be about product. Or if they're about service, they're about a service that's kind of sort of a product. Like a SaaS cloud service. Yes, it's a service, software as a service. I'm well aware of that. We deal with those folks all the time. But it's kind of productized. You know, it's got specific price points, it's got specific features. Has a um, name. It has a name, right? But services, they're like way more amorphous. It's much, much harder to basically define the bounds around what you do. So the very first thing that takes us back. And I won't repeat any of it to that initial defining what you do is super important because you have people who initially start out so commodity that they're like, well, we cut everybody's lawn. Well, then how are you differentiated? So that's going to hurt you when you market. The second thing is the ego problem. I think this is particularly of smaller firms. It becomes very easy for a small professional services firm owner to get a lot of conference speaking engagements, maybe even get the opportunity to write a book or two. And all of a sudden, what you find is, they're losing connectivity between is that marketing effort actually driving them leads. I talk to small business firm owners all the time that have this problem. Like I go to them and I say, okay, you have a website. Yep. What do you do for marketing? Well, I give speeches and conferences and I write blog posts and I do this and I go, you know, they list, lay all this out. And I say, do you think they're effective? Oh yeah, we hear all the time they're effective. People like them. How many leads do you get a month? One. Okay. All right. So here's what's going on. You are getting great ego gratification from all of those things you're doing. But if that lead form isn't filling out, it's broken. Not the lead form, but you. That's what the it is. And your marketing's broken. And so there's this challenge sometimes with professional services of fusing the feedback you get as the smart person running it, or the smart team running it, that you know things, and kind of confuzzling that with the fact that the way people might find you via Google and the kind of content they're looking for in those circumstances is very different. To sum that up, your primary customer of your marketing in many cases is Google. And that doesn't mean just like search engine optimization. I mean, like it's how are people going to discover you? You have to really ask that question and you have to be very, very concrete about it. If the average conference you go to is going to be the Forrest Gump style box of chocolates where you really never know who's going to show up and one out of 30 people might be a good contact, well, quit doing that. Go do something that you can monitor and you can maintain and you can track, which is going to be much more kind of digital marketing efforts, right? I just find that's a really big problem. So I'll stop there, but there's this tendency to sum up where your service firm owner does things that feel a mix of ego gratification and personal connection. So a lot of training, teaching, that kind of stuff, conference talks, and they tend to not invest nearly enough In the asset that they really need to, which is the website and being very, very programmatic about the content they build. And they're not even writing it for their clients so much directly as they're writing for it to be found and then be engaging. That's such a simple thing in some ways, but it's what happens a lot. If you look at the amount of time a professional service owner or leadership team spends marketing, their time will be spent on a lot of those activities that aren't digital, aren't web, aren't focused on Google. And that's a huge mistake right out of the gate.
1: So closely related to marketing is sales. And I know one of the things you help your clients do is you help that relationship along between marketing and sales so that they work together and they support each other. And I've seen that go wrong in so many cases. So I'm really curious to hear a little bit about how you accomplish that.
0: Well, I think the first thing is you can't let them be separate such that their core metrics need to be the same. And that even comes from, I think, the way you interact with them at a manager level. You know, we have a regular standing meeting called client creation and all of marketing and sales shows up to it. And the reason I called it that is because that's the joint job. But very quickly, as simple as that is, it's very easy to have a marketing team all of a sudden not focus on client creation. They focus on engagement and page views and how often people download a piece of content. But you have to ask that marketing team, but how often is any of that turning into a customer? And how often when we get that customer, do we convert them? And the same thing's true about sales. Can you take those leads that you do get and can you convert them in a meaningful way? And I know it seems somewhat straightforward, but it happens very, very quickly as firms grow, that marketing starts to focus on vanity metrics and things that just show that what they're doing is being engaged with, but isn't ultimately creating a customer. And sales tends to then ignore some of that activity and and frankly, not participate all that well in the creation of the marketing assets. And that's their fault because in most B2B sales, The sales team is engaging in what I say sometimes is a never-ending qualitative research project. Every interaction they have with a prospect, they're tuning their language, they're thinking about what resonates, they're understanding what value props make more or less sense. But very infrequently is the sales team brought into the conversations with marketing to say, can you tell me what we should write? And we know why, because even that phrase itself, it's like, how many people think sellers know how to write? you took a poll? Probably not that many, right? And how many people think marketers know how to write? A lot. If you took the converse poll, how many people think sellers really know how to talk to people? Well, that's pretty high score. But this is such a huge initial flaw because especially in B2B cycles and in professional service sales, so much of what resonates with the prospect is the way the seller talks to and engages with the prospect. So the marketing team needs to be willing to kind of go on bended knee of sorts to the sales team and say, can you help me understand what I need to write? What messages do I need to send down range and what's going to resonate? And once you get those two teams really working collectively on the messaging, right. amazing things result. That's because true. then the copy you have actually works on the website because it's informed by sales messaging. And at the same time, marketing can then help sales Write better messages because because they all work together, right? Like to finish this off, we've all received an email from a salesperson that looks like they never went to any of the classes in elementary school that focused on grammar, Yes, right? Yes. Well, this is where marketing can help. Let marketing help write those email cadences, but marketing can't write them if they don't understand the customers. So equivalent to all of this, I have a lot of like co-seat time with marketing and sales. Marketing shows up in a lot of sales calls just to listen in, just to understand what's going on. And I think at the end of the day, this is again, a leadership problem. If you let marketing go off on its own and you let sales go off on its own, it's easy to blame the temperaments because they are different temperaments of human beings to some degree.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um,
0: But- The fault is leadership because they're supposedly both working to create a customer and you as a leader need to make that happen and show how they can help each other to do that. So sum up, don't let them create metrics that don't relate. Sales doesn't just get to focus on sits and deals they close and marketing doesn't just get to focus on how many people view to give a blog post. You have to give them something that really matters, like leads converted for both teams, lifetime value generated from those accounts. That's a very combo goal that they can work on together. You and then teach them how to leverage what they both know. Let marketers teach sellers how to write better and write better campaigns and sales outreach. And let sales teach the marketers, hey, I know that isn't a perfectly grammatically sounding <laughs> sentence that I use, but I have to tell you when I say it to clients, they respond
1: favorably.
0: So help me tune that into something more manageable. I just think it's one of those things that, There's so much there, but more often than not, and I'll finish with this, is on this point, I think what happens is the leader tends to have a deep-seated preference for one way of behavior or another, and then they end up kind of prioritizing that way. So maybe they're much more an analytical thinker, maybe a very good writer not as good at engaging with customers, they're that kind of leader. Well, they might bend over to kind of more the marketing team and exalt them a little more. The converse is also true. You can have a small company that the leadership kind of grew up from somebody who knew how to sell. So now they're not really fully investing in marketing the way they should because they think everything is just a customer conversation. And I think you have to get very bilingual as a leader. And I should say this, this very last thing. I'm an example of that journey, 100%. If my high school English teacher thought that I was leading a marketing team that was a team of exceptional writers, I think they wouldn't be able to get off the floor from laughing. <laughs> I was not a good writer in any shape or form at all, but I learned how to become a much better writer. I'm shamed by the stuff I wrote 15 years ago or 10 years ago, even. I was going to become bilingual in that way. I was going to become really good at speaking and at least a 1B to a 1A with writing. And that would be my challenge to a leader. If you're like, ah, I, you know, I talk to people really well. I have people who write. No, 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 no. If you're leading, you better get good at both. And then you can merge these teams in their skill set. So I know I went a little long there, but well, I can get right. pretty passionate about keeping those two groups aligned. I do think it really falls on the leader more than the teams themselves, which is what tends to happen.
1: You know, last thing I want to talk to you about, I love all that. That was fantastic. But the labor market is challenged for people right now. And I know you talk about apprenticeship is better yep. than onboarding or traditional training, or apprenticeship is better in the onboarding process than traditional training. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that.
0: It's interesting that we've even gotten to where we're at with this, because if you look at the history, right. And I'll keep this super brief in the olden days, right. We knew what apprenticeship was. You learned how to make horseshoes from the Smith and you worked with them for a number of years. And, and, there were things about that system that weren't good. Right. I mean, you know, sometimes you're trapped in an apprenticeship or you never get free of it or those kinds of things. I mean, all of that stuff wasn't necessarily a good side of it, but you did that because the skill you were learning was complex, even making horseshoes. It's a mix of manual labor and chemistry. And so you've got all that in play. Then we go to the world where we've got factory upon factory. And the whole goal was to basically give people limited amounts of training and they were somewhat replaceable. I'm not trying to judge it. That's what it was. I grew up on the South side of Chicago in a little town called Dalton, which was pretty much right next to Gary, Indiana, which is where all the steel mills were on the South side of Chicago. Hmm. I mean, perfectly fine career path for anybody. Those guys made a good living and good homes and good families, but they were replaceable as actually played out. So train the guy and, and there you go. Well, now we've turned the other way again. Now we have all these people, the knowledge workers, the people who are kind of most of them, the ones that are campaigning to work from home. You can't put them in just two weeks of training and they learn everything they need to know. They're even in market environments that are constantly shifting. So any amount of training is going to be out of date. And what's ironic about this focus on apprenticeship where you're, constantly engaging and mentoring versus kind of focusing on an onboarding process that's like train and you're done. It's weird for me because I wanted to be a college professor. I may go back and be one someday. I love teaching. So it's really odd for me to not stand up a formalized training program around here. But instead what I do is just a ton of daily, weekly, sometimes even hourly, like apprenticeship. Get off a sales call, debrief go through a blog post with a marketing team and really sit down and kind of show them exactly what they need to do to change things. And I think at the end of the day, people these days actually really value it. But I'll tell you one hiccup with it that's huge. This is the really big thing to take away from, if you're going to switch to more of like apprenticeship versus training, you have to train your people to be willing to admit they don't know something. And regular training doesn't force them to do that. Because regular training, you can be a fairly silent participant and just pick up what they tell you. But the challenge with apprenticeship is it kind of only works if the person you're apprenticizing admits they don't know things and gives you the opportunity to educate them. So one of the things we say around here a lot is we have a culture that is very founded on, I can say to anybody in the organization at any level, I have no idea what to do next, or I have no idea what to do with this. I think it's a little bit of a double challenge, to be honest, because I do think we have some cultural issues. We have a generation of people who were raised to kind of sort of believe they do know a lot about most things. And so it becomes doubly challenging for them to turn around to their boss and say, I don't know something. Mm -hmm. And as a boss, you also can't immediately attack them because they don't know something. You have to be willing to be like, okay, that's reasonable. You don't understand that. Let me help coach you on that. And once you get that broken down and people are willing to engage at that kind of daily level, one-on-one apprenticeship, amazing things result. So anyway, sum up, it's odd for a guy who wanted to be a college professor to not be super on board with like standardized training, but I do just a ton of apprenticeship and I think it fits the times. I think it fits the jobs we have. And I think to some degree, it even fits the people we have.
1: I love all that. Sean Campbell is our special guest today. And Sean, we asked 12 rapid fire questions of every guest that comes on our program. So we'll run through these really quick. So our audience can get to know you a little bit better. We already know that you could have been a college professor. So we'll see what else we can uncover here. <laughs> okay, what, fair what, enough. What's the best memory that comes to mind for you? Best memory. Gosh,
0: I'm sure it would involve my family. And I'm sure it would involve probably something outdoors. There's been some really awesome fishing days. There was one that we went to a place called, I don't know if this is the best, but it's its up there, a place called 10 Mile Lake on the Oregon coast. And we literally caught 200 fish in one day on this lake. I was taking kids out and family. And it seems like no matter what we did, we just brought a fish in the boat and literally caught a couple hundred fish out of like five, six hours. I know that sounds like I'm making it up. It's a fish story, but it's real. I love being on the water and lots and lots of good times with that.
1: That's great. Who's the number one hero in your life?
0: It would have to be my wife. My faith is really important to me. So I kind of struggled with that one a little bit because my relationship to God is for obvious reasons, more important than my relationship with any individual, but definitely my wife for a lot of reasons.
1: Well, we probably have another one here. One of those two can fit into, but what's the top value you subscribe to?
0: Read stuff you disagree with.
1: Who's the most important person in your life?
0: Oh, that would probably be my faith in God. Although I would, it's a very, very close second would be my kids and my wife. Cause I'd like to think we're pretty tight and okay. I've invested a lot of time there over the years.
1: Cool. What are their names?
0: Ryan and Josh.
1: And your wife's name? Kim. What's your favorite thing in the whole
0: world? Gosh, there's a few, I guess. The bottom of the seventh in a baseball game on a warm summer night. I love it. Cause there's no shot clock. And no matter how far you're down, Maybe they'll win anyway. It's, There's it's something hot. magical about 9 p.m. when you still have enough time to win the game, yep. but it's not over yet. Anyway, it's, I'm a big baseball fan.
1: Yogi Berra famously said, it ain't over till it's over.
0: And it's one of the things I tell people all the time. They're always like, why do these games take so long? I said, that's the magic of it. It yeah. might not be over for a while. That's the
1: what, whole idea. What's your favorite food?
0: Ruffles potato chips.
1: <laughs> Most beautiful place you've ever visited?
0: Anything around Cape Blanco, Oregon.
1: If you could describe success in one word, what would the word be? Persistence. How do you want to be remembered? Somebody who was strong in their
0: faith, put their family first, and anything they learned, they tried to give back in some way to somebody else, teaching them it or mentoring them it or
1: training them it. If you could go back and talk to a young Sean, what would be the advice you would give him? Have more faith. What's your favorite sound?
0: The sound of fishing lines spinning off a reel.
1: True uh, fact. I never really thought of that till right now, but that's true. Out of all the lessons you've learned in your life, what's the best lesson you've learned? I'd go back to another one. Read stuff you disagree with. We've been visiting with Sean Campbell. He's the founder and CEO of Cascade Insights. And Sean, tell everybody if they're interested, how do they find out more about you? How do they reach you? How do they follow you? All those things.
0: You can find me just by going to CascadeInsights.com and I'm up there. You can email Cascade at hello at CascadeInsights.com or you can email me at Sean at CascadeInsights.com.
1: That's fantastic. Sean, thanks for taking the time to do this today. I mean, you have added a lot of value to our audience. Hey, thanks for having me on. You bet. Sean Campbell, everybody. Stand by. I've got more on Better Than Before coming up next. There's nothing quite like the love of a good dog.
2: Receive weekly coaching tips from Tony Richards, delivered straight to your inbox. Whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, Tony can help you reach your goals and give you a competitive edge within your industry. Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo covers topics ranging from leadership development to teamwork to company culture and more. Text the word leadership to 38470 to sign up for Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo. Or sign up online at clearvisiondevelopment.com.
1: Welcome back to Better Than Before. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sean Campbell that we had today. I've got three big ideas to share with you before we leave. Number one, what causes people to fail? Well, everyone has their own reasons, but 99% of the time, It is fear of some kind. Big idea number two, everyone has a measure of something they fear. Some people have developed strategies to deal with it, while others have not. And number three, big, great ideas don't just come to you. They must be pursued. And as a good friend of mine always used to tell me, the proof of desire is in the pursuit. If you really desire something from the depths of your soul, you will pursue it with all your heart. And that's what you have to do with big ideas. You got to pursue them, chase them down, and conquer them and implement them and execute them. Now, that's our show today. Better Than Before is sponsored by University Subaru. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. You can follow me on Twitter at Tony Richards4. You can join our free Facebook group, Tony Richards Speaker, Author, Coach. Special thanks, as always, to our super producer, Tessa Hall, who always makes better than before sound so good. And until we visit here again next week with more leadership and growth strategies to share with you, I'm your host, Tony Richards, always reminding you to never forget that everything gets better when you get better.